purposes of the study and then some of our preliminary findings. Because as I say, this study is ongoing. Um, we expect that it will be completed uh, by the end of this calendar year. So I make no assumptions that everyone in this room is an international investment lawyer or even particularly familiar with international investment treaties. Um, so I put this chart on the screen to uh, make the point as to why you all should be, because they are a, an exceptionally pervasive type of international instrument that states have entered into, uh, mostly bilaterally, uh, in their thousands. Uh, this number comes from uh, the end of last year from UNCTAD and shows um, over 3,300 international investment treaties uh, having been concluded uh, as of that time. These treaties have three principal characteristics. They address the scope of coverage, namely they speak to what is a covered investment and what is a covered investor. And then they provide standards of protection for those covered investors and investors that each state reciprocally promises to grant to investors from the other state. And those are fairly well known by now, the fair and equitable treatment standard, non-discrimination, uh, a prohibition on, on expropriation without compensation, uh, free transfer of funds. But what has made them so remarkable, I suppose, is that they also include um, a very active and effective dispute settlement mechanism, namely the institution of investor state arbitration. Investment treaties are all-encompassing, unless expressly carved out. They apply to all aspects of governance, all branches of government, and all levels of government. They apply to all areas of regulation, and they apply to all sectors of investment. And we know, generally speaking, where most disputes under these treaties tend to arise in terms of sector. They tend to be in extractive industries, they tend to be in energy, they tend to be in infrastructure and public services, investments that typically take large amounts of sunk capital in order to get going. What we have also seen is that investors have found out about these treaties and have begun to use them in greater and greater numbers. This again is from uh, last year, but we know now today's figure would have that number of known claims brought under investment treaties at over 900. I should say these are known claims because in large measure most international investment arbitration remains confidential and it is not at all clear that we are fully aware of all of the cases being brought uh, under all of these treaties. When we ask which actors are responsible for the claims, that is to say which actors within the state are taking the measures about which investors are complaining. Uh, recent research from Zoe Williams, uh, now at the LSE, um, shows us that overwhelmingly claims result from administrative measures or measures taken by the executive branch. Uh, as a matter of second order, we have legislative measures. 
and in a distant third, measures taken by the judicial branch. Finally, it's worth pointing out, just as an overview preliminarily, um, how much these claims involve. Um, the average amount claimed was 1.3 billion US dollars. Um, the median amount claimed is 113 million. And the reason for the mass disparity between the median and the average is because of a number, well, one particular very large claim brought against the Russian Federation in connection with the expropriation of Yugos oil. That also skews the amount recovered, the average amount awarded being half a billion dollars, but the median amount being more about 19 million dollars. Um, and again, it's because of Yukos and the 50 billion US dollar award that the Russian Federation faced in that claim uh, that these numbers are so out of whack. But Yugos, although an outlier because of its enormous size, um, is not an outlier in terms of being a large award. We do see a significant number of awards that have been rendered against developing states that are for massive amounts of money. $2.3 billion award against Ecuador in connection with its treatment of Occidental Petroleum, a US petroleum company, uh, a nearly $1 billion award against Libya uh, as a result of its treatment of some Kuwaiti investors. Um, Finally, if we ask, just as a policy matter, who's winning and losing these cases, well, we see that if we look at all cases in aggregate, this is all known filed cases, we see that states win more than they lose. 37% versus 28%, a fair number settled, a fair number, number discontinued for reasons that we will not know, but if we break that number down and we look at cases which actually go to the merits, if we take out cases where the state is able to dismiss the claim on jurisdictional grounds and simply look at cases in which the state has actually gone to the merits on its performance under the treaty, we see the number changes pretty dramatically. And investors succeed about two-thirds of the time when the case goes to the merits. So investment treaties create obligations for states. They empower investors to bring claims in allegation of breach of those obligations. And they empower arbitral tribunals to issue awards, sometimes massive awards, of compensation in favor of foreign investors. So why do states sign investment treaties? Why would they ever do such a thing? Well, classically, the thinking has been that by signing an investment treaty, the host state signals a commitment to providing a predictable investment climate serves as a signaling device of assurance to investors who might be concerned about 
conditions of investment in that country, particularly legal conditions. This was highlighted at an early stage by Hartley Shawcross, who was one of the drafters of the Abs Shawcross Convention, an early effort to come up with a multilateral instrument that would deal with the protection of foreign investment. And in a way that deserves quoting, uh, Shawcross said, well, the quid pro quo for the developing states is in fact the provision of the quids that capital exporting states might otherwise feel more comfortable uh, sending to those economies than they otherwise would. So, if you sign an investment treaty, you will attract investment. That is typically, or classically, being the principal policy argument in favor of signing such treaties. Do they do what's on the tin? Do they have their intended effect? It's been a highly contested empirical question, uh, dealt with by political scientists, by lawyers, by economists. It's fair to say that there is some evidence of correlation between investment treaties and increased levels of FDI, but that there is far from evidence of causation with respect to that increase of FDI. And the principal difficulty, as has been explained by numerous authors, but a principal note, I think, are, are Emma Aisbeth and Jason Yaki, are that first, there's a, there are difficult questions with respect to the quality of the data. Foreign investment data tends to be difficult for states to compile and tends to be highly variable depending upon the source of foreign investment data that's being used. So Jason Yaki has an interesting paper within the last year or so on the effect of investment treaties on foreign direct investment into Thailand. And using three different data sets, one compiled by the Thai government, one compiled by the IMF, one compiled by the World Bank, uh, he came up with three very different conclusions as to whether or not there was a correlation and or arguably any kind of causation. Um, and the further difficulty is that in these large data set studies, there is great difficulty isolating variables, exogenous factors that might otherwise account for increases in FDI. But there's another narrative to the investment treaty regime, uh, and which has been brought to the fore more recently, and which forms the, the core, or if you like, the, the focus of our attention. And that is what we call the rule of law promise. The idea that investment treaties will have a disciplining effect on states which sign them, principally developing states, that they will create a carrot and a stick that will incentivize developing states to follow and internalize their obligations because of the fear of liability from investors and investor state arbitration, and also that they will have an educational or promotional effect 
which is to say that by following the obligations under the investment treaty, states will become acculturated, in essence, to governing well, and will do so not only for the foreign investors to whom they owe a legal obligation under investment treaties, but also to all members of society within the host state. Investment treaties will have a spillover, trickle-down, however you'd like to call it, effect on rule of law conditions in the host state. Now, these ideas are based on a number of theoretical assumptions. Uh, the first is, of course, that the state is somehow a unitary actor that is driven towards compliance. This idea that states comply because it's in their self-interest to do so, they wouldn't have consented to these treaties otherwise, and that when states are tempted not to comply and they face the threat of sanction, that will provide a coercive incentive to them to comply and defer and do sorry deter violations in the future. This kind of rational choice model of the state as a preference maximizing rational actor. And there's a lot of reason to doubt that model and to doubt this effect on investment of investment treaties on host states. The first is that these, the claims that have been made in this respect lack empirical basis. Neither Schills nor Ichandis nor any of the others who have posited this effect, this secondary rule of law effect, um, have done so on the basis of any empirical data or any empirical study as far as we know. It is rather more based upon the theory of the state and how the state might act and how a rational state might act. But as we've learned with recent scholarship over the last 20 or more years, um, states are complicated actors. Opening up the black box of the state reveals the impact of domestic preferences and domestic dynamics on international behavior, including on compliance. And so rather seeing the state as a unitary actor that is moving towards unified, coherent interests, perhaps a better approach is to understand the state as rather a disaggregated actor, sometimes moving in different directions sometimes in competing directions with competing interests. So understanding the state as this disaggregated actor, recognizing the role of public administration and the wide range of actors within states that can take actions that can cause violations or claims under investment treaties. One, would, one comes to the conclusion that in order for the state 
Well, in order for these investment treaties to have such a disciplining effect, one would expect to see coordinated state action being developed within the state. And that, in turn, would suggest the need for governance capacity. We would expect to see in a state which attempted to overcome the disaggregated character of most governance mechanisms, we would expect to see procedures or mechanisms for intergovernmental flows of information, coordination of decision-making, and establishment or creation of awareness or mechanisms for awareness of international legal obligations. But as we know, most developing countries, most host states, suffer from low levels of regulatory and governance capacity. Now, the idea that we develop here is finds its basis in a whole prior literature on transnational legal ordering on the, and the emphasis on the domestic component to the way in which states interact with their international legal obligations. The work of Harold Coe, of course, has been particularly influential in this area, but also the work more recently of Greg Schaefer um, looking at the role of domestic factors on state behavior, domestic demands, domestic power struggles, and domestic culture. Now, work in transnational legal ordering has typically focused on questions of compliance with international obligations. And it's highlighted the effect of domestic factors on compliance, particularly in areas such as environmental law and human rights law. And some of the factors that have been identified include the role of national elites or other interest groups within the state, the role of corruption, which is unfortunately a pervasive problem in many states in the region in which I'm now based in Asia. Regime type has also been suggested as being relevant to understanding whether the state will comply or not, with the idea being that democratic states tend to comply better with their international obligations. And of course, regulatory capacity, as I mentioned. Regulatory capacity and this process of governing. Now, to the extent that that black, black box has been opened, it seems to us that there are still certainly some areas in the shadows. And they become relevant to our understanding of the way in which states internalize, if they do, their international investment treaty obligations. And that's particularly in this interaction between international legal obligation and the state's public administration. Bureaucracy, if you like. While regulatory capacity has been considered in a fair number of prior studies, there has not been that much attention paid to decision-making processes 
in governments, especially as they impact upon the state's actions with regard to its investment treaty or international obligations generally. An exception to that is some recent work in connection with the United States, which looks at this question of how, if at all, government officials take international law into account in their elective decision-making. Now, this idea of elective decision-making is an idea that has been raised by Kevin Cope, and it attempts to distinguish two different types of decision-making that the state needs to make. On the one hand, might be we might consider compulsory decision-making with respect to, invest, to international law. That is to say, when international law is a necessary part of the decision-making process, where, where, for example, a treaty requires that the state give particular effect to the treaty in its national law or undertake certain specific measures in its national law. For example, under the WHO Tobacco Framework Agreement with respect to certain measures that states are obligated or agreed to undertake. In contrast, elective decision-making might be thought of as situations in which government brings international legal considerations to bear on ordinary domestic-focused law, regulation, policy decision-making, which is not on its face directly connected with international law. And that is, in principle, what we are most interested in. How and when do state governments take into account their investment treaty obligations in their governmental decision-making? How do they internalize investment treaty obligations? Investment treaties pose a daunting governance challenge to states which adopt them. They contend with the pervasive scope of the investment treaty obligations, as well as the generally pervasive scope of foreign investment within many economies. They contend with the legal characterization of the state having unified responsibility and they have to contend with the diffuse reality of governmental decision-making, in which, as, we've already, as I've already mentioned, domestic considerations, domestic struggles, play a significant role. And so that is our principal question. Do states internalize? What states do they take to ensure that relevant governmental organizations take international investment treaty obligations into account and weigh them in their actions or in their decision-making process. We use inter internalization in distinction and contrast to other terms which are sometimes used in the literature, such as, for example, compliance. We understand compliance to refer to an end result, to a question as to whether the state has actually adhered to an international legal obligation. 
Internalization, by contrast, refers to processes, refers to mechanisms by which the government considers its existing international obligations and weighs them in its decision-making process. Internalization can increase the likelihood of compliance, but of course, it cannot assure. International obligations, as is well known, are frequently one of many contending values that a government will consider in its decision-making process. We also contrast internalization with implementation. We understand implementation to refer to the state's adoption of international law into its domestic law in order to give domestic legal effect to international law or carrying out specific obligations called for under a treaty, again, like under the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control. So with that interest in mind, we formulate three research questions. The first is simply descriptive. Whether and in, if so, in what ways, do governments internalize these investment treaty obligations into their decision-making processes? What do they do? The second question is more analytic. What are the factors that affect whether governments internalize investment treaty obligations? And what explains variations among different countries or variations between different government entities? And then lastly, we, our third research question, which is evaluative or inferential, asks, well, to the extent that we have evidence that states have internalized international investment treaty obligations, do we see evidence of a positive spillover in the governance of the state? Do we see this rule of law effect that has been promised? To do this, we've undertaken a mixed method empirical study uh, relying on qualitative case studies, adopting an approach of process tracing and relying heavily on interviews with government officials. We have, I have to count them. We've selected eight states. Um, in our study, two of which um, are developed states, Singapore and South Korea, but the rest of which are developing economies. And developing economies are of particular interest to us because it is with respect to developing economies that investment treaties are meant to have their principal effects, both in terms of increasing FDI, but also disciplining and promoting the rule of law. We have chosen our case studies and as to focus on Asia. At the Center for International Law, our primary focus is with respect to the role of international law in the Asia-Pacific region. And part of our goal, in addition to legal research, is to provide timely policy advice to regional governments. So that 
slots in with the mission statement of what the center does. We choose India, Indonesia, Myanmar, Singapore, South Korea, Sri Lanka, Thailand, and Vietnam. And we have scholars who are either based in those countries or who have direct connection to those countries, being local lawyers or local scholars, so as to fully under, be able to compile highly detailed case studies. Part of the process tracing approach is closely dependent upon detailed case studies that can later be analyzed to try to understand causal or descriptive inferences about temporal events. Did the state do this because of that? Question might be raised, why didn't you do China? Um, you go do China. <laughs> China's big. Um, it, it, we simply thought that for a first time out, um, China was probably too large and too complicated um, for us to undertake. You might then ask, what is India doing on that list? Um, India is on that list principally because we have uh, a top-class scholar, uh, Prabhat Ranjan, um, writing the case study there, and we feel confident in what we can do. Um, certainly, China is not only important as a, as a global economy, but also understanding the impact of investment treaties on the way in which China is governed would be a fascinating undertaking. But what we see in this case study, in this research at least, is that this method can be replicated going forward with respect to other regions in the world. And in adopting this approach, we are taking an approach that is, is similar to the approach that has been taken by Mavluda Satarova in her recent work on the impact of international investment treaties on host states. Um, we differ somewhat slightly, perhaps, in the depth of the case studies that we will be using and in our adoption of process tracing. Our focus is specifically and solely on understanding the impact on decision-making um, and understanding whether or not there have been uh, spillovers. Um, we limit our normative claims um, in, because we simply want to try to understand the empirical state of affairs um, at this point, where there is very little information. So, in order to approach these questions, we needed to operationalize them in some respect. What would we look for that would help us answer these questions? What would we expect to see in a government, or in the process of governing, that would be indicative of internalization. And so we've developed a typology, I love that word, it sounds so fancy, um, a typology of internalization processes and measures. And we imagine internalization measures or processes in three principal categories. The first we call informational measures. And these are measures which a state might undertake to diffuse information and communicate the state's legal commitments to relevant domestic actors. An example would be a handbook 
or a manual or internal training courses which inform government officials of the existence of the state's international commitments. These are. Secondly, we imagine that there will be a category of monitoring or preventative measures. Are there processes by which the government attempts to screen decisions, screen policies for consistency with international obligations? In the OECD, there has been work on regulatory impact assessments, which many OECD economies have adopted, and which require government officials to assess whether a proposed regulation is consistent with the state's international obligations, including specifically its trade and investment treaty obligations. So do we see evidence of these types of mechanisms or processes? And then thirdly, do we see remedial measures? And these would be processes that are designed to correct or to defend the state's compliance with its international obligation. An example might be an ombudsman, an institution within government to whom investors might be able to go to raise complaints, concerns, grievances before they become formalized as an investment treaty claim. An early warning system, for example, might also fall within this category, a system by which relevant line ministries or other governmental units can communicate with central responsible authorities about potential problems with foreign investors. In addition to these three principal processes, these three, three principal categories, we also imagine that there will be cross-cutting characteristics. So, for example, a particular measure may or may not have been designed specifically for investment treaty obligations. It might be an existing me mechanism which has been co-opted in order to ensure that investment treaty obligations are taken into account in governmental decision-making, for example. So we see the possibility of differences between specific and general mechanisms of internalization. Similarly, processes might be ad hoc or they might be fixed. An ad hoc mechanism might be a very short-lived campaign of training within government that lasts for a year and then stops. And we see, actually, plenty of examples of that. But we might also see durable mechanisms which establish mechanisms and measures for internal assessment of compatibility of new legislation or other kinds of regulation. An example here, as I'll come to when we talk about preliminary findings, but an example here is the way in which the Attorney General's Chamber of the Government of Singapore and their International Affairs Division plays the role of reviewing government regulation and government legislation for compatibility, not just with investment treaties, but with international, Singapore's international obligations generally. So there we see a fixed process of general character that's been co-opted to apply and incorporate 
Singapore's investment treaty obligations as they've developed. We might also distinguish between formal and informal processes. Informal, again, might be manuals, they might be handbooks, it might be education. It also might be much more individual. It might be individual awareness with respect to investment treaty obligations. And this poses the greatest challenge from a research perspective because it's exceptionally difficult to examine individual awareness across government. Um, we tried to get at that through the use of interviews, through looking at evidence in political discourse, looking at evidence as to whether or not investment treaty norms are being raised by other societal actors in other discourse, usually political. Um, but there is ultimately no way to know whether individual line ministry street-level bureaucrats will have an awareness as a fluke uh, of these obligations. So we focus principally and foremost on processes that we can observe in the research. Finally, we also recognize that there will be distinctions between what is on paper and what is happening in reality. And as we see, have seen already in many of the case studies, states adopt policies, they adopt mechanisms and measures, but they are never used. That is an indication perhaps of a specific fixed process, formal process, but in reality, it's not much better than not having any process at all. So we have at this point conducted two workshops uh, in Singapore with our authors, um, and our case studies are at this point at an advanced stage with authors going back to conduct final rounds of interviews, final edits. And it allows us to offer some preliminary findings. What we see as a general matter is not surprising to anyone who's ever practiced in the area or dealt with governments in this field. And that is for many years, most governments have not taken steps to internalize their investment treaty obligations. And in fact, in many cases, we're largely unaware of the nature of these obligations even after having signed the treaties. To the extent that this has changed, for most states, it appears to be a consequence of investment treaty claims. Either investment treaty claims or, as I will point to shortly, negotiating a free trade agreement with the United States. But with respect to claims, what's interesting is that while it has clearly been an impetus for reaction by states, the reactions have been very varied. Some states have attempted to internalize. Some states have attempted to improve internalization. Other states have 
chosen to ex exit the system. And if not exit, exit and then renegotiate re-entry. And particularly I'm thinking about India and Indonesia. Now with respect to more granular findings, the first is that there are low levels of internalization in almost all states beyond specialized nodes of the central government. So for example, in Indonesia, we find keen awareness within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and within the National Investment Coordination Board. But those are the nodes that are principally responsible for Indonesia's investment treaty policy. When one moves out from that center to sectoral ministries, to regional governments, we see an almost complete absence of awareness. The exception is with respect to mining. And there, Indonesia has faced claims with respect to its permitting practices for mining. What we also see is that while seminars and workshops will happen periodically, disseminating knowledge and information, they're sporadic. There's no consistency to the approach. One can contrast the Indonesian experience with the Vietnamese experience, where in Vietnam, having undertaken a process of regulatory modernization and the, an increase of regulatory capacity as a consequence of a general push to attracting foreign investment, in, increasing international trade, Vietnam has co-opted mechanisms adopted for that general purpose in order to internalize its investment treaty obligations. A second is that in developing states where we do see internalization, we see few formal internalization measures being taken. In India, in internalization appears to be almost entirely absent. After the white industries case, there was a significant increase in awareness and a significant salience to matters with respect to investment treaties that had a knock-on effect with regard to certain legislation in the Indian parliament. But in terms of processes for internalizing and ensuring that investment treaty obligations are taken into account, particularly in the executive branch and particularly at the subnational branch, there has been almost no movement in that respect. There have been discussions with regard to the establishment of a center state investment agreement to improve cooperation between entities of government at different levels, talk about the creation of an international law advisor to advise the government on its international legal, legal commitments and international disputes. But all of these recommendations so far have not been adopted. In Myanmar, interestingly, and perhaps because Jonathan Benicia was resident in Myanmar for a number of years, attempting to help them with adopting policies and measures for complying or internalizing investment treaty obligations, a letter was sent out to all ministries and all state and regional governments um, indicating that they are required to contact 
the Department of International Investment um, in the event of any concerns or grievances being raised by foreign investors. Now, that would, was an attempt to establish a process by which there would be oversight or at least input from a specialized node at the center. And yet, as we understand, despite these letters, uh, no line ministry has ever contacted the central government for advice. I will not go on with many more examples in this respect, except to again contrast this with Vietnam, which has co-opted mechanisms that were adopted for international law generally, um, has adopted uh, guidelines for state bodies um, and for municipal governments, um, and is in the process of currently developing a specialized handbook for all line ministry and municipal officials to have access to training that would attempt to provide a baseline understanding of Vietnam's international obligations. Again, not to make these people investment treaty experts, but rather to give them enough information that they will be aware of the obligations and contact relevant authorities as and when issues might arise. Now, even in developed states, the two that we have in our study, Korea and Singapore, we see variations in the formal measures that have been taken. Um, on the one hand, Singapore is exceptionally impressive as a small, single-party, unitary state in the way in which it is able to use the Attorney General's chambers and the International Affairs Division to review prospective regulation and legislation. Similarly, the Ministry of Trade and Industry runs an annual trade academy, which includes investment treaty obligations for members not only of MTI, but also for other ministries. But yet we see difficulty in connection and internalization with respect to statutorily created bodies, such as the Investment Promotion Authority, which do not, in the course of things, have their decisions come through the Attorney General's chambers in the same way that another ministry would do. Similarly, Korea, which has undertaken extensive efforts to disseminate information about its investment treaty obligations to its regional authorities, has written elaborate handbooks and provides monthly training um, for regional and other line ministries, um, has no formal process for how to address grievances when they arise, how to defuse them. Um, there's no early warning system. The Korean Foreign Investment Ombudsman, which is much touted in my parochial investment treaty law circles, um, is interesting in as much as it is totally disconnected from Korea's investment treaty obligations. It is there to attempt to address grievances and concerns that foreign investors might have, but the members of the ombudsman themselves have virtually no understanding of international investment treaties and are not in any way plugged into the Ministry of Justice 
which otherwise deals with investment treaty matters for the Korean state. And what we see, and that is really the weak coordination among informative monitoring and remedial mechanisms. What of factors do we see as affecting internalization in these states? Well, it seems fitting to, to quote Vaughan Lowe uh, standing in this room, but as Vaughan Lowe once said, while a bit can be signed with a stroke of a pen, a reputation for a legal environment that is stable and attractive to investment takes many years to build. And what we see here is that while states have undertaken obligations under these treaties, um, it requires a great deal of governing effort in order to internalize these obligations into the day-to-day -day business of government. And that is really highlighting the role of regulatory capacity. Um, the role of regulatory capacity is already well recognized in connection with environmental law and human rights law. And it is no different with respect to international investment treaties. States which had low capacity before investment treaties, by and large, tend to have low capacity after investment treaties. Vietnam may be an exception, but whether or not Vietnam's improvement in regulatory capacity can be causally linked to its investment treaties seems unlikely. It's just that that boost in regulatory capacity has been able to take account of Vietnam's investment treaty commitments. The second is the importance of the bureaucracy and the importance of the organization and the dynamics of the bureaucracy. The way in which government ministries interact with one another, the way in which even most more prosaically, civil servants are hired and rotate. The number of governments in which persons responsible for uh, investment treaty obligations are rotated after a period of time, resulting in a loss of institutional memory. It's effectively uniform across states. Additionally, we see some suggestion that the nature of the administration, the structure of government plays a role to the extent that countries like Vietnam and Singapore or single party governments their commitment to internalization, the structure of government appears to allow them to bring internalization into effect a bit more effectively. And lastly, it's triggering events. Triggering events, of course, being claims and the role of claims, but also the role of negotiation with the United States. As I mentioned earlier, when one tracks Korea's internalization efforts, they track to Korea's negotiation of its FTA with the United States. Similarly, when one tracks Singapore's internalization efforts, they track to its negotiation of an FTA with the United States. There appears to be a concern about US investors and their propensity to bring claims under these treaties that focuses the minds of governments. Finally, and I am at time, but what about the rule of law? Do we see this spillover effect? And the answer is that 
for us, the absence of internalization mechanisms and procedures generally suggests the absence of a rule of law spillover. If investment treaties are not being internalized, then they are not having spillover effect. Having said that, it would be wrong to say that there is never spillover. And we see anecdotally, in certain cases, examples of measures being taken in response or as an account of investment treaty obligations which are targeted not only at implementing or internalizing those obligations for foreign investors, but doing so in a general way for all members of society. Indonesia has reformed its permitting process for all investors. India has reformed the way in which it treats the recognition and enforcement of foreign arbitral awards. And Myanmar has established a grievance mechanism which is open to all investors. Thank you very much for your attention. I appreciate it very much. Sorry for going over time. Thanks very much. Um, well, with respect to, to UNCTAD's numbers, UNCTAD um, has two different categories, as, as you noted. There are the BITs, which are bilateral treaties that are focused exclusively on the protection and promotion of investment. And there are treaties with trade-related uh, provisions which includes things like FTAs and includes things like the Energy Charter Treaty. Um, as it turns out, none of the states that we're looking at are parties to the Energy Charter Treaty, being in Asia. But um, our view, I guess, is that all of these states have a portfolio of investment treaties which bear upon 
their legal, which create legal obligations for them. Um, and when we see internationally, that is almost uniformly the case. There are virtually no states without international investment treaties. Um, they all typically provide for the same types of protections and they have the similar scopes of coverage. So for the purposes at least of this work, we are treating them as a, as a fixed variable in a sense. We, we, for the individual case studies, there's analysis of the particular portfolio that that state has and whether that impacts the way in which internalization is taking place. But for our more general thinking, we're not trying to slice that too thin. Um, with respect to how far can we push these, our findings, I'm in complete agreement with you. We, um, what factors affect internalization in these states? We're, we're, we're quite aware that we have a handful of states. Um, I think social scientists would call these uh, plausibility probes. We are trying out a, a method of research in a group of states. They are selected on a geographic basis, in part because of where the center is. In part, the states individually that have been selected have been selected because of accessibility. Do, could we find somebody in Cambodia who could do the case study that we would like to do in Cambodia? And the answer was no, we, we unfortunately could not. So part of it is, is really serendipity as to the states that we've been able to get um, access to and which have been willing to um, subject their officials to interviews and so forth. Um, but that then, of course, yes, it will limit what we can say and what we're prepared to say. Um, we will not, at the end, make any grand claims as to how internalization does or does not happen across states. Um, we will simply observe what has happened in this particular group of states, attempt to put it together with other research that has looked at other states, particularly Mavluva Sedarova's, and see whether we find uh, harmony in, in those findings. And for the last, the last part, I, we, I agree, uh, investment treaties far from, do not create a, a complete code of good governance, far from. Um, of course, they, they focus particularly on foreign investors, and then they deal with a pretty narrow set of goods, all centered around the protection of private property. Um, so, of course, it would never ensure a perfect institution of the rule of law in the states which adopt them, even if one were to imagine that they would be perfectly internalized, whatever that might mean. Um, but I don't think that that's the claim that is made. I think the claim is that they would, they would produce improvements um, generally across government, perhaps in, in, more, in broader ways, but, but certainly not in any kind of total way as to the way in which governments deal with uh, their citizens as well as foreign investors. Antonius? Uh, thanks, thanks, Jan. I, I, um, I mean, my, my question is related to Catherine's, really. Um, and that the first one is, I'm, I'm not sure about that distinction you draw between implementation and internalization, um, in the sense that especially as it relates to international investment law. Um, 
and perhaps you can explain that a bit better, because to me, the fact that you implement certain things in the domestic law, right, essentially internalizes them far better than any handbook could ever do, uh, for one and for another. And so most of the internalization will have happened through implementation in domestic law, which in fact can happen, um, especially in the area of international investment law, in, uh, in ways other than saying, oh, it's because that I have to give you fair and equitable treatment that I will have sort of like a proper procedure of licensing. I mean, it's not because there's a treaty that says, oh, you must grant an investor fair and equitable treatment, which to most people means precisely zip, and then be fair and equitable, that you have a proper licensing requirement. So to what extent do you actually capture this in implementation slash internalization? And the second part goes precisely to that internalization bit. Which is, I mean, if anything, international investment lawyers have difficulty dealing with the vagueness of standards like full protection and security and 3,000 sort of conflicting words as to what this might mean in the particular circumstances where this particular official uh, sort of withdrew that license because they got a kickback. I mean, how's that, I mean, how's a handbook going to help you with that is what I'm trying to say. Right? Or to what extent can you actually internalize uh, what is essentially vague norms um, that are then uh, sort of elaborated upon by a whole host of conflicting investment awards? I'm obviously presenting this sort of like in the, in the exaggerated form just to say, it, I mean, I can't, I can't help but wonder what more you could do as a state um, uh, in terms of well, having a particular framework of domestic law um, in, uh, influenced as it may be by your international obligation and your, and your implementation of them. And if anything trickles down, then that's what trickles down, the fact that you comply with your domestic law in the context of your administrative process, um, rather than sort of like having handbooks or, or, or ombudspersons to sort of what compared like your practice to the decision of the tribunal in Occidental versus Ecuador. I mean, how is that going to happen? That, that's what I'm worried about. Well, certainly on the last point, it's not going to happen, and it's, it's not intended to happen. Though. And these handbooks, as, as I've seen them in Korea and in a host of other countries, they're not intended to turn a line ministry official into an international investment lawyer to make fine decisions as to whether or not a particular regulation violates fair and equitable treatment or non-discrimination and so forth. What they attempt to do is to create awareness that there are obligations out there that the state has undertaken. And no, that that's what worries me, because the obligation of granting fair and equitable treatment, I mean, if, if I were an official and I had no idea of this, and, and you came to me and you said, I am an investment lawyer and I would like to inform you that you need to treat investors well, fairly and equitably. I, I, I don't think it's, okay. it's not nearly as, as, as tricky as you imagine, in the sense that Fair and equitable treatment is what it is, but it's, it's not, not dramatically different from an understanding of natural justice or due process that one finds familiarly in domestic legal orders, which are difficult to apply and require specialized understanding. So, for example, in the British government, there is now in its fifth edition the handbook Judge Over Your Shoulder which is a manual for ministerial officials about judicial review and provides 
in effect, a step-by-step -step as to how to make good decisions that will later not be subject to effective challenge in judicial review proceedings. Handbooks follow in that tradition in the sense of trying to identify to line ministry officials the types of issues that can arise and doing so through case studies, both focused on sectoral types of disputes as well as particular types of measures, be it permitting, licensing, and etc. So it will not clarify those standards, but it will hopefully create an awareness that when dealing with foreign investors, which may not always appear as foreign investors when you're dealing with them, uh, you need to be aware that we've entered into obligations and that if there is concern, there are people in government who have read the Saluka case and who do know something about it and can perhaps provide some guidance as to how the decision should be taken. On the question of implementation versus internalization, I mean, we, we look at internalization as effectively a, a question of governance. Is, is this happening in the governing process? Whereas implementation is something that we might say, did they adopt that law or didn't they? Well, that question for us doesn't tell us anything. If they adopted the measure but they haven't done anything, um, as a consequence, then we're not really, that's not what we're interested in particularly. We want to see what have states done in terms of governance as a consequence of investment treaty obligations. Have they done anything? Um, because again, we respond to a claim that they should have a rather wide-ranging disciplining effect and they should have a rather wide-ranging effect on the way in which states are governed. And I think that deserves to be interrogated because as a claim um, in support of a regime that is essentially an essential in part now of the international economic order, um, it's not one that is supported by any empirical uh, observation. Maybe I'll comment on this point and I think, I guess the point raised here was that even if a government did everything right, they pretty, like the portfolio started working well, they came up with good guidelines that actually adhered to. This doesn't actually stop them from being sued by international governments. We've seen this when lots of developed countries have been sued by companies merely in protection of the environment, and it definitely has created this sort of question and controversy about them. And so the question I think here is, even if the intentions are the best ones and the, and the application is perfect, it's something about these instruments themselves that are creating this sort of maybe difficulties for internalization and implementation because there's no possible signal necessarily coming from this regime. But then since this slide is up, I just had one more point. Um, one of the obvious reasons why what then does affect internalization overall is the willingness of the states to actually internalize. Um, I'm sure you are familiar with Logan Paulson's work on multinationality. Pakistan had no idea what he was signing up to when he first signed his PIT with uh, West Germany. Um, and I think the question here is, did, did these countries actually know what the trade-off was? Probably not. And if so, is, do they actually want to internalize? Is the, like, maybe, maybe all they at the moment want is to not be sued, um, <laughs> which is fair enough. Um, so I think governments at the moment might just be willing to come up with mechanisms that is avoiding them from 
I personally look at exit and renegotiations, and that's why I found it interesting about the Indonesia and India cases, which have now a mass unilateral internalized some of these treaties. That does this mean that they realize they do not actually want to internalize these norms? We do not agree with this. Hence, we rather renegotiate, make them match our own domestic laws, or or is something else. I mean, I think the point, a point to make just with respect to in Indonesia and India is that um, they have terminated, they have indicated their intention to terminate, but they have not left the system. They have rather said, we want to be in the system, we just would like to be in the system under different treaties. Um, and, we, and you can compare how, how they've gone about that, whether some have been more radical than others. Um, it's... It's a good point. I, I, I agree with you on internalization um, versus compliance. I mean, even if there is perfect internalization, we don't hypothesize what that would look like. But of course states will continue to be sued. Legal advice is no guarantee that you will not be sued. Uh, developed economies are sued constantly under domestic judicial review laws for matters on which they have taken legal advice. That doesn't mean that they didn't take legal advice or that taking legal advice was not worth the time that it took to take the legal advice. Um, so what we're looking for here is, are there, you know, is there an effort, is there a moment at which someone who has an awareness and perhaps even uh, an understanding of these obligations is in the frame of decision making such that the obligations are being taken into account? Lago's work is, is impressive and, and useful, particularly for understanding early stages of um, the investment treaty regime's development and the negotiation of treaties, certainly well into the first decade of, of this century. I dare say that by now, it has to be a pretty willfully ignorant state that is not aware of the existence of these obligations and their potential impact between the work that's been done by UNCTAD, by the OECD, by NGOs, etc., this is by now very well known. That then in turn, I think, certainly means that states would rather not be sued. And I think for many states, they see that as how can we internalize these obligations? That doesn't necessarily mean we want to change the way in which we govern perhaps across the board, but certainly can we take these obligations into account when dealing with our foreign investors so that we don't inadvertently end up on the wrong side of the claim? I'm really sorry for the fast, but the room is being booked at two. Yeah, so sure. Thank you very much. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you again for coming. My pleasure.